Question. Have you guys ever noticed that when people talk about things that have happened in history, events, moments, we, we sort of talk about them like they're a thing rather than talking about them like they're people? I had this, I had this uh, the other day where I was um, watching the news, and um, um, this is the headline, okay? It just came up. It was like a 10-second segment in the, in the news, and, and this is what it said. Um, seven days ago, you guys probably saw it. Headline, September 1, Texas shooting, seven dead after gunmen's Odessa rampage. That was it, okay? That's the, that's the thing. And so people see that and they go, oh, man, that's terrible. And you're, you're, you're sort of instantly frustrated. Okay, another, seriously, another shooting. Okay, how many shootings do we have to have, right? Um, but then you move on to the next thing. You move on to the next piece of news, the next event, the next thing. And in your head, you think of that shooting, you think of it as a thing. But what you don't think of is you don't think of the people that were in that shooting. So it was really interesting as I was watching the news. At the end of this, this segment, they took four minutes and they just began to talk about the humans, the people that were actually shot in that shooting. It was really profound to me. I just wanted to read it to you. 15-year-old Layla Hernandez. She had just celebrated her quinceanera. Her brother, Nathan, tried to shield his younger sister from the gunfire and was shot in the arm. Nathan wrote on Twitter, I did my best to protect you. I'm sorry. Joe Griffith. Again, these are people that were all shot seven days ago. Who was 40, was shot and killed in his car, sitting at a traffic light with his wife and children. He was a member of the First Baptist Church. His friend Rick, also a member of the congregation, said, for all of them to be there and be witness to that is just unspeakable. 30-year-old Cameron Brown joined the army in 2007, served in Afghanistan. Mary Brown said, he had to go fight in a war and come back here to be killed. Senseless. This is unfair. Mary Granados was a letter carrier with the U.S. Postal Service. She was 29 years old, finishing up her shift when the gunman hijacked her vehicle. 35-year-old Raul Garcia was a long-distance truck driver and a father of four from El Paso. The oldest of the victims, Rodolfo Arco, was shot and killed driving home from work. His sister told reporters the 57-year-old had moved from Las Vegas after the 2017 mass shooting at music festival. She said he felt Odessa was the place to go. And lastly, Edwin Peregrino, age 25, was at home, or was home for the weekend visiting his parents. He ran outside after hearing the gunshots when the gunman drove by and shot him. So seven days ago, this event happened. Now, there's, there's shootings all the time. We know that. Um, and, and we hear those things kind of come by, and we go, oh, there's another shooting. Oh, there's another shooting. But then when you listen to these details of these human beings that were in it, it brings a gravity. It brings a, a, a dimension to the, the reality of this event that happened. I'm not just trying to start out on a dark note here, but what I'm trying to, my point here I'm trying to make is just simply this, and that is that, that every event in history, every profound event, every good event, every bad event, it had people involved, real people. So some of you guys, you know, you're just visiting and you're, you heard about this on, on Facebook or maybe you're just coming to support and, and things like that, and you see the, the branding and you see the name and you think, Philippi, okay, um, that, that's a thing. Well, it's not a thing, it's people. It's people. There, there are people here that, that make up this church. And it's true of every church or every entity and, 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 and organization in the world. They're people. They're not just a, it's not just a thing. So 2,000 years ago, Paul planted a church called Philippi. Okay? And that church wasn't just a thing. It wasn't just a, 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 like a, an object. It was people. And those people, they really lived. And they had real lives. And, and, and Paul was a real person. This is how we believe that we read the Bible. The Bible is, a, is, is not just stories, it's a reality about real people in real time and real stories about real things that really happened. And, and this, this church called Philippi in 2,000 years ago, it, it was really planted. 
So I'm going to just read to you really quickly. I want you to stay in in Acts, but I'm going to read to you the letter that Paul actually wrote to this church called Philippians. Um, In Philippians chapter 1, he wrote him a letter. And listen to what he said. He said in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in prayer of mine, for you all making uh, you all making my prayer with joy. Listen to what he says. Because of the partnership and the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership, it's koinonia, it's fellowship. He, he's saying that I thank God for the partnership that you and I had, Paul says to this church in Philippi. The church, that this, this relationship, this community that we had, that we were both partnering for the gospel. From the first day until now, he says. Now what's the first day? What's the first day? I mean, you just drop into this letter and you realize, you read the book of Philippians, you know, um, this isn't just Paul writing random things. He's writing to real people, about a real, uh, to a real church, about real things. And he says, I thank God that from the first day you have partnered with me in spreading the gospel. What's the first day? What happened? What was the first day? When was it that Paul interacted with this church? When was this church planted? If this is our first day, what was the first day of the Philippian church? And he goes on to say, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers, sharers with me of grace. Paul had this really unique relationship with the church at Philippi. He had this relationship. Later in the the book of Philippians in chapter 4, he goes on about how they were the only church that supported him. Um, now, if you, if you know, um, historically, when you were in a Roman prison like Paul was, the Romans, they didn't give you three square meals. If you didn't get provided food and support from outside, you would just die in the prison cell. So Philippi, they actually funded not only the ministry of Paul, but they actually supported him in, in jail. They actually fed him. They kept him alive. He said, you were the only church that stood by me and supported me uh, in this work. So Paul had this special relationship with them. But I want to know, okay, this, this moment in history 2,000 years ago where this church was planted in Macedonia, Greece, what happened? Who were the people? Who were the people that that church was started with? I want to meet them. I want to know their stories. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. <clears throat> Acts chapter 16. So if you're there, let's take a look at it. My voice is going to go out before the end of this teaching. I woke up with a cold last few days, and I'm just letting you know. <clears throat> so that'll keep me from preaching long. Acts chapter 16, a little bit of background before we get into the text here. A little bit of background. So Paul's on his second missionary journey. If you guys are familiar with the book of Acts, which by the way, we're going to be starting next week. Uh, We'll be launching into Acts chapter 1 next week. But if you're familiar with the narrative, the flow of Acts, um, Paul has these series of missionary journeys. Um, We pick up here in the second missionary journey. So he... um, his first journey was pretty, pretty close to Jerusalem where he started. His second missionary journey, he starts to travel sort of outside of his bounds. He picks up a new missionary team, <clears throat> Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke. These are his companions on this next missionary journey. Now his plan, let's see if I can show this to you. His plan originally was to go um, to this place called Asia Minor, right there, okay? Asia Minor, uh, which is now modern-day Turkey, um, Jerusalem is down here, okay? This is where uh, the birth of the gospel started. Uh, Antioch up here, where, he st- where the missionary journeys would start. His plan was to go up and to invade this whole area with the gospel. <clears throat> it made perfect sense to do that because it was geographically the next place to go. The problem is, as he tries to go there, 
the Holy Spirit won't let him. Look at verse 6 in chapter 16. <clears throat> this is bad. I hear my voice disappearing as we speak, as I speak. <clears throat> verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. <clears throat> when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So here's what's happening. Paul's trying to get over here to... He's trying to get over here to Asia, and the Holy Spirit's not letting him, blocking him. We don't know exactly how or why. So then he says, well, maybe I'll try to go north up here into Bithynia. Holy Spirit won't let him. And Paul's probably confused about that. He's thinking, why, Lord, why would you not want me to go into to Asia Minor with the gospel? That's a good thing, right? We want to bring the gospel to the nations. And, and the Holy Spirit's conflicting him, keeping him from doing it. So verse 9, a vision uh, now imagine, now Paul's in Troas. Okay, Troas is the coastal, um, is the coastal town here in Asia. Let me show you, because um, this is important. Okay, he's in Troas. Now this is as far as he can go in his mind. He's skirted all the way over the top of Asia. He's frustrated. He's saying, where am I going to go from, from here? Where could God possibly be sending me? And then in verse 9, he has a, a, a dream. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, and Macedonia is Greece, by the way, was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia. Thank you, my brother. He really is my brother, not, not like spiritually. Like he really is my... Uh, <laughs> wasn't a metaphorical brother. <clears throat> and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul's stoked. He has this dream. He goes, yay, finally, I know where we're supposed to go. He has a dream of a what? A man... Where? In Macedonia. That's Greece. Okay, that's the next. That's all the way across the Aegean Sea right here. This is Aegean Sea up here into Macedonia and Greece. This is not where Paul was intending or planning on going, but because he has this vision, now he has direction to go and to find this man who was in his dream, who's calling out to him, please come help us, bring us the gospel, okay? So verse 11, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage across the Aegean. It's about 150 miles across the sea to Samothrace, that's an island in the middle, and following the, day to, <clears throat> the following day to Neapolis. Neapolis is the port of Philippi. Uh, it was about eight miles from the city of Philippi. Verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. It's funny that he puts, now Luke is writing this, by the way. Um, <clears throat> Luke was Paul's physician. It's funny that he puts leading city because it's Luke's hometown. So he's, it's really not the leading city, but I think in Paul's mind, he, or in Luke's mind, he's like, this is the best city. It'd be like if you were like the, the leading city of Southern Oregon, Grants Pass, you know, um, Medford might think that was a little weird, but I think it's better, but not to offend all the Medford people, but I live here now. So um, to Samothrace in the following day to Neapolis, verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, we remain in this city some days. Okay, so he, he says specifically that Philippi is a Roman colony. What does that mean? Uh, it, ba it basically means, well, let me read this. Um, one commentator in the Baker Commentary series said, the Roman influence was strong here because Philipp Philippi's status as a Roman colony, which made it legally like a Roman city. It had an autonomous government, freedom from tribute and taxation, and legal ownership rights like those in Italy. So basically, Philippi is like a little Rome. And, and, and Roman soldiers were encouraged to actually move there and retire to this place called Philippi, this, this Roman um, place. Uh, so it's, it's totally outside of the comfort zone of Paul and his missionary team. Let's just say that. 
Culturally, totally outside. He is from Jerusalem, and now he's all the way in Greece. I mean, we're talking, this is the ancient world here. We're talking like me going all the way to China. I mean, we're just in a different culture, different constant different context, and, and they're, they're, they're just stepping into what God has called them to do. Now, here's where we get into the meat of it. So we're going to meet three people that Philippi started with. Okay, now again, Philippi wasn't just a thing. It wasn't just a place. It wasn't just a church. It was people, and these people got saved, and they had radical encounters in the gospel, and, and Jesus reached out and saved each of these people. So let's meet them. I want to introduce them to you. Here's the first one. Her name's Lydia. Take a look at chapter, or take a look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, that's Saturday, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, this is really interesting. It's interesting because typically Paul's procedure for going into cities with the gospel was he would go and he would find a synagogue. Um, because synagogues uh, were a place where Jews would be gathering and he would have an immediate audience because Paul was actually somewhat of a prominent Pharisee, he could immediately pull up a stool and start to share the gospel, and they would listen. So that's what they would do. But here, they don't do that. Do you notice that? They go to this prayer meeting outside the gate to a, a river where there's a group of women praying. They go there because there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. There had to be at least 10 Jewish male heads of household in a city um, to have a synagogue. There's no synagogue. So they go and they, they start interacting uh, with these, these women. And Paul sits down like a rabbi would or like a, 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 a Jewish person would. He sits down and he addresses these women and they have a conversation and a dialogue. In verse 14, we meet Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Now I want you to note that and we'll come back to it. She was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now what do we know about this woman, Lydia? Okay, Lydia was a businesswoman. It says that she was a seller of purple. If you know ancient history, purple was expensive. You had to have a lot of money, a lot of equity up front just to be able to even produce purple. So this guy would be the equivalent of someone who owned an expensive boutique in downtown Portland who travels for business. Okay, this is who Lydia is. She's probably educated. She's successful. She lives by herself. She's single. Um, she, she has many servants. She travels for work, Okay. This is Lydia. She's also, it says, a fearer of God. What does that mean? Now, it's actually a technical term. That, that means that she was a Gentile, a non-Jew, who was observing um, or worshiping the Jewish God, but had not fully become a Jewish proselyte yet. So this is who Lydia is, okay? This is who Lydia is. She had a good theological foundation under her, but she's conflicted. So look at what Paul does. He, he comes in and he sits down. He has a, a dialogue with these women. And as he does, it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There's a few things you need to see in that sentence. First of all, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Paul didn't do it. Paul's just doing what he does. He's just putting truth out. And it's the Lord that opens her heart. Notice it doesn't open her eyes. He opens her heart. That's, we, we've referred to this before, cardi optics, right? It's this idea of seeing through the heart, that God, through the heart, allows Lydia to see the truth and see the gospel. It's, it's, if you look more closely at verse 14, it says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. The, the Greek there, the tense of it is heard plural, meaning that she heard him multiple times. That doesn't mean that Paul just strode in the city and he just sat down and started telling gospel truth and she just all of a sudden got converted. It probably happened after a time and a time and a time. She's a logical woman. 
She thinks through the details. She knows the Torah. She knows the Jewish scripture. And she's listening to Paul interacting with her. And she's actually, um, over time, she begins to, to, to the, her heart begins to open towards the gospel. This is the way that she's saved. And notice that she pays attention to what Paul is saying. And meaning that she tunes into it. That she stops maybe um, tuning into what she was and starts tuning into what he's saying. And she focuses on it. And God saves her. Verse 15, after she was baptized, I love that, immediately she's baptized, her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, this is really, there's some humor here, okay? First of all, why does she have to prevail over them to get them to come to stay at her house? Because they are Jewish men, and she is a single Gentile woman. That would just be weird, okay? That Paul would never think to go stay with this woman. But listen to what she says. She says, hey, if I'm faithful, if I've really been saved, if you really believe that what God just did in me was true, then come stay in my house. I mean, what are you going to say to that? I'm like, well, okay, you're right. We do believe that what God did in you was true, so we're going to come stay at your house. I love that Lydia instantly steps into the mission work of the gospel, right? She gets saved, she gets baptized, and she says, now I want to serve the gospel. I want the mission work to be housed in my home, and that the church in Philippi actually started in her house. All of her faculties, all of her money, all of her stuff, she instantly said, this is now to serve Jesus with. And and she was was even pushy about it. She's like, we're going to do ministry in my house. You're coming to my house. We're going to do church there. I love that. I love that. She's on board. So this is Lydia, our first convert, okay? A, a fluent, intelligent businesswoman who's successful. She's a Gentile. Paul sits down. He reasons with her. Um, she hears the gospel. She gets saved. She gets baptized. She's in the mission. Now she's the first convert in Philippi. How cool is that? Let's meet the second one. The second one is this young slave girl, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, who is this girl? This girl, a few things about her. She was a slave, number one. Okay? She didn't own her own life. She was probably young, something like 15, 16 years old. She probably was sold into slavery by her parents, probably sold her because they, they needed the money or whatever. They sold her into slavery. She is literally being used, she's being pimped out for her ability to be able to tell and fortune tell things in the future. Now, Paul doesn't say that she's duping people. He says she literally has this ability because she has a demonic spirit in her, okay? So she's being, she's being used by her owners to, to play on, on, the, on the Greek mindset, which is that we need to know what the gods think about our life and the decisions that we're making. And these Greek people, they're willing to pay to get the answer, Should I sail across the sea? Should I not sail across the sea? Well, let's pay some money, have this girl who has this spirit tell us about it, okay? The spirit that she has, the word there, it's actually from the Greek word pythos, which pythos was this, was believed um, that there was this Greek um, mythological snake dragon, um, this is ridiculous, but this snake dragon that actually would inhabit these young girls and, and give them sort of this ability and this power to speak um, and fortune tell. Okay, so, so this is what is happening. This young girl who, who's a slave, look at verse 7, she followed, 17, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, isn't that interesting? She's actually saying what's true. Why? Well, the demonic, okay, the demonic actually is more aware of the spiritual realities than we are because they live in that dimension. Okay, oftentimes we're really skeptical of anything spiritual, and in reality, the demons have a really clear idea of who's on the throne. 
That's why in Mark 5, when Jesus interacts with Legion, what does Legion say? He says, crying out with a loud voice, he said, what, do you, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? Interesting that one of the most accurate one of the most accurate statements about the, the person and deity of Christ comes from someone who's demon-possessed. Because the demons know. They know who's on the throne. They know the truth. They know who God is. This girl who's, who's being held captive by the Spirit is like a metal detector. She's drawn to these guys because she knows who lives in them. And she knows the message that they preach. And so she's drawn to them. She's, she's calling this out in public. Now, not all publicity is good publicity. She's drawing attention, but she's drawing attention in a bad way. So Paul, in verse 18, says she, she, this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. Okay, I love that. If you were writing this yourself, you wouldn't make yourself look like a total jerk and, and say something like that. You would say, Paul, being so compassionate and just so loving, had such pity on this girl. That's not what it says. Paul was just annoyed. He was frustrated. He's like, would you stop shrieking in public? It's driving me crazy. So he becomes annoyed. and He turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Listen to what Tony Marita says about this passage. He says, with this move, the power of Christ is displayed. The pythoness is delivered. What a relief this must have been to the girl. She was suddenly in her right mind, following an encounter with Christ. Now, we presume that she too became a follower of Jesus after deliverance. She suddenly had a new owner the only good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who freed her from spiritual and physical bondage and gave her peace, joy, freedom, and rest. This poor girl had been used her whole life. She'd been sold by her parents. She'd been controlled by a demon. And then she'd been sold out for this ability. She was used by the people that sold her and she was used by the people that bought her. And now she has a new master, a master that loves her. She has a new yoke. Now she drinks from living water instead of swamp water. Jesus comes in and becomes her master. He saves her. He, he claims her. He says, I love you. You're mine. I'm not going to pimp you out like these guys. I'm going to set you free. Now, regardless of Paul's bad attitude about it, God still did it. Because even though Paul's being a jerk, Jesus is perfect. And Jesus loves her through Paul's bad attitude. Now, sometimes God is going to use you even when you're being a jerk, even when you have a bad attitude, because Christ's heart is perfect and perfectly loving, and he always loves people that are in front of us. Amen? I can't tell you how many times God used me when I had a bad attitude, but he still used me. And Jesus gets the glory because he's the one that loves this girl. He's the one that carries about her. She's enslaved, and he sets her free. Now, there's a cost to this event. Look at verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. The advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Is that true? Anyone? Anyone would be that guy in the room? Is it true? No, it's false. All of this stuff is false. None of, there's no truth to this. The crowd joined in like crowds do, attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments and stripped them naked off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet and stocks. What a day. I mean, Paul's dealing with this girl who's just shrieking at him, all this stuff, and so she frees the, he frees the girl, and then all of a sudden, because the money is not there anymore, it's always about money, isn't it? When was it that they decided to kill Jesus? 
It was when he came in and started messing with their racket. They were making money off the temple. Jesus came in, messed it up. All of a sudden, he's headed to the cross. So, so, so they, there's, a cost for, for, there's a cost to this. Because they free this girl, now the city is upset. Now, what's really happening here? What's really happening here is that a kingdom beachhead has been planted in Philippi, right? Do you understand what I mean by that? That means that the gospel just invaded one of the darkest places, Greece, where there is no light. And the gospel's been planted and people are being saved and people are being freed and the enemy hates it. He hates it. So he stirs up this riot against these guys and they get beaten, stripped naked in the street and then taken to stocks and they're put in prison. What a bummer day. What a bummer day. It was illegally handled. They were falsely accused. Now, Jesus told him that this would happen, didn't he? He told him. He he said, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts. And what? Flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Jesus said this is going to happen. They knew it was going to happen. But here's the beautiful thing about this. Paul saw it as a joy to share in Christ's suffering. He said to the Philippians later in Philippians 3.8, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. So that's why in verse 25, we're going to meet our third convert. So get ready. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, you're just like, okay. If you haven't read this passage before, I want you to just think about this. Put yourself in this position. You're a Roman citizen. You paid for that citizenship. You worked for that citizenship. And by such, you you are supposed to be awarded a trial. You've done nothing wrong. And you've been humiliated, stripped naked in the street, beaten profusely, locked up in a dungeon overnight. You're sitting there miserable, hungry, cold, frustrated. What do you do? You start cussing at the name of Rome, right? No. What do these guys do? They begin praying and singing hymns. It's unreal. Who does that? I wouldn't do that. Are you kidding me? But these guys do. Now, I just have to say this because I used to read this text and think um, that what this meant was that they were in prison and they just had this elated joy and they're like, Jesus is good. Like, that's not happening. They're probably singing really sad hymns and that's okay. This doesn't mean that all of a sudden all their problems went away. It doesn't mean that their back wasn't bleeding. It doesn't mean that they weren't depressed. It doesn't mean that they weren't discouraged. What it means is, is that they got their eyes on Jesus. Okay? And that's important to note because <clears throat> there's this idea in Christianity that you should just be happy all the time. And if you're not happy, something's wrong with you. These guys were not happy, but their eyes were on Christ. Right? Their eyes never left Jesus. The fact that they're singing hymns, the fact that they're praying means that they are looking to him to be their deliverer and that that never stopped. In every circumstance, Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says that verse, which we all put on our refrigerator magnets, he says it in context to suffering. Whatever suffering comes, I can handle it because Christ lives in me. Christ strengthens me. Then notice the physical miracle. Verse 26, here's what happens. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken 
And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So this is crazy, right? So as they're singing and the prisoners are listening, um, an earthquake comes and all of a sudden all the doors bust open. And for some reason, what's really weird is they don't all run out. I think it's because the prisoners were so fixated on these weirdos over here that for some reason were singing hymns and praying that they actually wanted to stick around and see what the heck was going on. Because they knew the earthquake, was, the earthquake was related to them somehow. They knew their God was the one that broke the doors open. They want to see what's going to happen. And Paul and Silas, they're not in a hurry. They're just like, let's just see what goes on. Now, the jailer, he wakes up. He wakes up um, from his sleep, and he, he, he instantly goes, oh, my goodness. The, the, the prisoners are all gone. My, my career's over. My life's over. If you, if you know the way that the Roman army worked, he would have to serve the, the, the penalty for the prisoners that escaped. So he immediately goes, I don't want to deal with the shame of a trial. I don't want to deal with the shame of being executed in front of my friends and family. So I'm just going to fall on my sword right now and get it over with. And he's literally about to fall on his sword and get it over with. And then what happens? The spiritual miracle. Look at verse 28. Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. What are you doing? And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, what is happening here? What is happening? The first thing I think is how in the world could they stay there? I mean, if it were me, I'd be running through the door. God has delivered us. Let's get back to preaching the gospel in the streets. Why would I stay in the jail cell that I shouldn't be in in the first place? I was here illegally. Let me out of here. Let me get free. That's not what Paul does. What does Paul do here? Paul sees a gospel opportunity right in front of him. He's not thinking about the gospel opportunities out there. He's thinking about the one right in front of him. He's not so focused on getting out the door so he can get back to winning souls. He's thinking, there's a soul right here. And maybe he's thinking even having enough foresight to go, maybe the whole reason we got beat was so that we could reach this guy. Maybe this was the reason we had to be struck and smitten and stripped. Maybe this was the reason we had to sit in stock so we could just reach this one guy that we never would have got to otherwise. We never would have seen him on the streets. He works here in the jail. Maybe that was the reason. So Paul has these eyes, these eyes of Christ, the same eyes that Jesus had when he walked around. He just saw hurting, broken people. And he stops and he says, that's the one I want. Paul goes, that's the guy. That's the guy we're here for. That's the guy in Philippi. This is the guy that needs to get saved. And he stops and he doesn't run out the door. The other thing is happening here is that Paul is free enough to stay. Think about that. He's free enough to stay. He's been set free. Paul was already free. He was free. Maybe he was in a prison. Maybe he was in stocks. He was free because he doesn't serve man. He doesn't serve Rome. Who does he serve? He serves Christ. So he doesn't need to run out the door to be free. He's already free. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's not the one I was trying to read. Here's the one I'm trying to read. 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, this is it. For though, I, listen, I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Did you catch that? Paul is free enough to stay. He's free enough to stay. He doesn't have to run. He serves Christ. Christ has led him here, so there he is. Do you know what kind of freedom in life that brings if you can have that kind of attitude? 
Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign will. Wherever he puts me, that's where I'm supposed to be. If I'm sitting in the DMV for four hours, that's where I'm supposed to be. I am free enough to sit here and wait. I mean, that's way better than his situation, but that's our Western version of suffering, right? I mean, where did Paul learn this? He learned it from Christ. This is, this is what Jesus did. He, he purposely gave himself, he purposely gave up his freedom in order to purchase our freedom. It's a beautiful thing. So then comes the question. The jailer says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now, this, this question's kind of random, actually. It's random for, for one because Romans didn't really think about eternal life and salvation and all that. They, they, they didn't really think, I need to be saved from eternal hell. That's, that's a, a newer idea. Um, it's a random question because uh, what, what is he even, what, why is he even bringing up salvation to these guys? And one, I just suggest this to you. One, one, one interesting thing is I wonder if this jailer, James Boyce actually points this out, if this jailer had heard this gal who was shrieking about them being the way of salvation earlier that day. He very well could have heard what was happening as he was marching to work to the jail and heard this gal saying, these guys have the way of salvation. Now he sees this crazy thing, this earthquake happens. For some reason, these guys are still there. They love him for some reason. <laughs> and he says, whatever the salvation is that you guys have, I want it. I think that's what he's saying. Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Notice what he doesn't say. Go get circumcised. Go confess to a priest. Go take the sacraments. You know, he doesn't say any of that. <clears throat> Just believe. Believe in Christ. Believe. Faith alone. That's all this guy needed. And you and your household will be saved. <clears throat> they spoke the word of the Lord. My voice is going to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Just like Lydia, he's immediately baptized. Just like Lydia, <clears throat> Lydia, he has an immediate call to generosity. Come live at my house. Come live at my house. Come stay with me. I want to feed you. I want you to meet my family. He is immediately, he's immediately pulled into community. This church at Philippi, these are the people. These are the people in the church. It wasn't just a thing. It wasn't just a, a place. It wasn't just a, a, a name on history or a name in the Bible. These were people that God called and called, uh, God transformed and, and, and God did a work in. Real people. This is Philippi, a diverse group of broken people being redeemed by Jesus together. Welcome to Philippi. We are a diverse group of broken people being redeemed by Jesus together. Amen? Maybe you're not broken, but I'm jacked. Seriously, I can't even talk. Like we are broken, and we are weird, and we are different. I want to make three points, and then we're going to be done. Three points that we can learn from this church. The reason we named it Philippi is because we wanted to anchor our identity to this church and how it started. There's some things about this church that I love, things about how Philippi was planted 2,000 years ago that we want to echo. Here they are. Number one, Philippi was diverse in background, but united in Christ. Diverse in background, but united in Christ. Listen to what John Stott said, and don't miss this. This is so profound. The head of a Jewish household would use the same prayer every morning, giving thanks that God had not made him a Gentile 
a woman or a slave. Those three things. But here, we're representatives of these three despised categories, redeemed and united in Christ. For truly, as Paul had recently written to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's saying here? Luke, in this narrative, he shows the conversion of a Gentile woman, a slave, and a blue-collar Roman Gentile guy. All of them. They're all welcome. They're all forgiven. They're all valuable. They're all used in the kingdom. I want to show you this, just a little, whatever it's called, table for you to see this, okay? You have Lydia. Where's she from? She's from Asia. Now, don't think Asia like we think Asia. Think Turkey, okay? She's wealthy. She's a God-fearer, and she gets saved through this really kind of mellow, like, dialogue intercourse down by the river. They're talking about theological things. Then there's this slave girl, okay? She's a native Greek, she's poor, she's a slave, she's tormented by evil spirits. She gets saved through this dramatic exorcism, like right in front of everybody in public. And then there's this jailer, he's a Roman, he's blue collar, he's practical and indifferent, and he gets saved through powerful miracles and gospel example. None of these guys got saved the same way. None of, them, these, none of these guys came from the same ethnicity. None of these guys came from the same socioeconomic class. None of these guys came from the same background. They're all different. And they are all now one in the family of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? This is one of the most amazing things about the early church that started the movement of the gospel. And it is that all of these different people started becoming family. Jews, Greeks. It's really interesting, actually. If You, you would miss it unless you saw it. But in the list of Jesus' disciples... There's two guys in there that you can't even believe they're in the same group. One of them, <clears throat> one of them was a, a zealot. You know what a zealot is? They were the angry, mad Jewish people who hated Rome. They hated Rome, and they fought against Rome. Those are the zealots. And then you have another person in Jesus' 12 disciples. You know who they are? A Roman tax collector, or someone that worked for Rome. Even worse, a Jewish contracted tax collector. We're talking, like, this is like putting someone, like a Zionist from Israel and ISIS in the same group. I'm not kidding you. These guys would have killed each other normally. Yet, in Christ, they become part of a family. They have completely different backgrounds. But their unity is found not in that, the fact that they're humans. Don't let, don't let hum, humanitarian, Unitarian, all of those Aryans, don't let those things confuse you. We're not united because we're humans. We're united because of Christ. Because Christ has brought the new humanity, which we are a part of. Because Christ is the new Adam, and we are part of his new family. So we bring our ethnicity, our diversity into heaven. Now, all of us have different backgrounds. We just all do. Some of you were raised in the church. Some of you weren't. Some of you were raised in the city. Some of you were raised in the country. Some of you were raised poor. Some of you were raised wealthy. It doesn't matter. That's who you are, but that's not who you are. Who you are is you are in Christ. That is your identity. That is the family that you are part of. What I love about the way that the church in Philippi started was that they had all different backgrounds, but they found unity in the person of Christ. They were one family. It's a beautiful thing. So whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, whatever your background, you're welcome here. You're welcome to come and become like Christ, like we are all doing. We're just a bunch of broken people trying to have Christ filled out in us to start looking more like our rabbi, Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. Number two, number two, Philippi was built by loving people, not the idea of people. By loving people, not the idea of people. What do I mean by this? Okay, think about it. Paul didn't run out the door. Why didn't he run out the door? 
when he got set free? Why didn't he run out the door? Because he loved people, not the idea of people. You know, when you first get saved or even just, I, I struggle with it all the time. You know, you think, oh, to be a missionary. Oh, to be a pastor. Oh, to do these great things. And, and you go and you do those great things. And at the end of the day, you realize, man, I'm, <clears throat> I'm in love with the idea of ministry more than I'm in love with people. It's something I struggle with all the time. Am I, am I in love with, with God's people? Am I ready to serve people and the brokenness that comes with that? Or do I just love the idea of being a Christian, the idea of ministry? Paul loved people because his rabbi, Christ, loved people. He learned that from him. Christ loved Paul, so Paul loved people. That's the reality, okay? Think about this. this I told you earlier, I said, note it, okay? Think about this. Where was Lydia from? Where was Lydia from? Oops. She was from Asia. Where was Paul trying to go in the first place? Asia. He couldn't go. Lord wouldn't let him. So he gets to Greece and he's thinking, man, I just wanted to go to Asia. Well, guess who's in Greece? A woman from Asia that he never would have reached if he hadn't been there. My point is, look at who's in front of you. Don't just think about the idea of somebody. Don't think about the people you will love someday, the people out there that you might love. Think about who's right in front of you. Who are the people that are there? God has led you to where you're at on purpose to reach those particular people. Our job as believers is to say yes to loving whoever God brings into our lives. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm quoting him loosely. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said that if you love the idea of community, you will destroy it. If you love people, you'll build it. Okay? If we love, it's just like marriage. If you love the idea of marriage, you'll, your marriage will end. If you love your wife, you'll do fine. Right? That's the reality. Okay? If you love the idea of Jesus, you're not going to last very long. If you love the idea of church, you're not going to last very long. If you love people and you love Christ, you'll be in it. Okay? This is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to do. Number three. Philippi existed because the gospel brings freedom to the broken. Does anybody believe that? Does anybody believe that in here? Hopefully somebody believes that. The gospel brings, you're like, is it a trick question? I don't know. I don't know this guy yet. Does he do trick questions? Philippi existed because the gospel brings freedom to the broken. I want to rethread the needle through our story just really quick. Think about this. Lydia, what was Lydia set free from? What's really interesting, Tim Keller actually points out on this. Um, he points out that, that Lydia had just at some point converted from the Greek thinking. Now, the Greek thinking was really empty. It was really empty because... Either you were stoic, who, who, who kind of thought that, that life was just only for the now and, and you needed to sort of control yourself and just make everything boring, or, or, or the, the, the other side, you think life is only for now, so we need to just do whatever we want and party it up. So she left Greek thought and converted to Judaism. Why? Because Greek thought is empty. There's no life in that. So she becomes a Jew. But now she's not struggling with emptiness, she's struggling with condemnation because she can't fulfill the law perfectly. So she's in this place, Lydia's in this place as a thinker, as a businesswoman, she's in this place where she's just like frustrated. And here comes Paul with the gospel and he gives her what she needs, the freedom of Christ. He's like, no, 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 it's not Greek thinking. No, 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 it's not Judaism. It's Christ, his yoke. And he sets her free with the freedom of the gospel. It's really interesting, the word attention to, it says in the text, if you look back at it, that she paid attention to Paul's words, those words, Keller notes, she began, says, she began, began to find what Paul was saying wonderful. It, 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 those words mean delight. She began to delight in Paul's words. So she heard the gospel and she started to, to, to delight in it. This is good. Anyone in here who's been saved, have you experienced that? 
You tried what the world had. You tried what religion had. And here's Christ. And he gives you something that you delight in. This is freedom. He gives you this freedom. Think about the slave girl. What was she set freed from? She was freed from opposition. She was freed from opposition. Why did Paul have the power to speak freedom into this girl's life? Paul wasn't a wizard. Okay, Paul, Paul can just command things. Paul had power because he spoke a name that represented power. He spoke a name that represented power because the cross that had taken place at this point contained power. Paul spoke the freedom to this girl because freedom was available, because it was purchased by the cross. Here's what I love about this. You know, for Lydia, um, she, the, part, the pieces of her life that needed to be put back together were theological. The pieces of this girl's life that needed to be put back together were physical. She needed to be set free physically from this, this burden. And the gospel does that. The gospel has power to set her free from her demons, set her free from the abuse, set her free from the slavery that she'd, been that she'd been suffering for. The gospel has the power to do that. What had happened, what was happening in that moment with Paul interacting with the slave girl was that he took her and put things right. She wasn't supposed to be a slave. She wasn't supposed to be possessed. She wasn't supposed to be oppressed or sold. And Paul comes in like Jesus does through him and he puts the pieces back together. That's what the gospel does. That's, that's why in, in, in Acts, the accusation against the early church was that these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And we all know they didn't turn the world upside down. They turned the world upside right. My four-year-old, he doesn't know when his shirt's inside out. You know, he doesn't get it. And so he just puts it on. And, and, and we all know, we're like, dude, that shirt is inside out and backwards. <laughs> it's usually both. So we flip it around. This is what's happening with this young girl. Christ comes into her life, and, and, and everyone around her thinks it's normal that she has this demon. In fact, it's so normal that they're willing to pay for it and willing to sell her. And Paul comes in, he says, this is wrong. Let's put it upside right. Let's fix her life. She's meant to be a free, loved, godly, young, beautiful woman that is not being pimped out and sold for her possession and slavery. He puts it back together. This is what the gospel does. It sets us free. Look at the Roman soldier. The Roman soldier was freed, and listen to this, and I'll close here. He was freed from justice. The soldier deserved to die. Did you know that? He deserved to die. I mean, these guys, Paul and Silas, they were held illegally. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. They shouldn't have been there, and in many ways, he deserved the sentence that he was going to take. But what happens in this story? Paul comes in, and he substitutes himself in the place of this jailer. He says, I will stay so that you can go. I will stay so that you can go. It's called substitution. This is what Christ does for us. He says, you deserve hell. You deserve to be out of my presence. But Christ comes in and he stands in that place for you. He says, I will stay so that you can go. I will go to the cross so that you can be free. I will take your sin and I will give you my freedom, my perfect life. All three of these stories... Freedom is had because the gospel brings freedom. The gospel brings good news. The gospel is the point. And we believe that the gospel, listen, the gospel has the power to transform lives. The reason we are planning this church is not just so we can have a new church. The reason we're planning this church isn't just for fun, so we can have cupcakes, which, by the way, we're having cupcakes afterwards. Stick around. And balloons. 
The, the, the reason we're planting this church is because we believe that the gospel is such good news that everyone needs to hear it. And there are 31,000 people in this city that have not heard it. Now, they may have heard some parts of it, but they don't believe it. And they haven't heard it yet. That's why we're here. Because the gospel is good news. That's why Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is good news. Something amazing happened. And we're here to tell people about it. It's so amazing. It's not just that we're here to tell people about it. We're here to learn more about it. Because it's good news. It sets us free. That's why our mission statement as a church is transforming lives I don't know why the desert just came up. That, just ignore that. Uh, <laughs> transforming lives with the gospel. This is our mission statement. This is why we're here. We're here to transform lives with the gospel. This reality that Christ was who he said he was. He died. He rose. He gave us his life. His life lives within us, and we are carrying out his mission until he comes back, and he finishes it, and we get to be part of it. Amen? So when you read Acts 16, I want you to think of us. If you're visiting, and you're just here to support us, and you read Acts 16, and you hear the name Philippi, pray for us. Pray that these things would be real for us. Pray that these things would be manifest. Mike, you want to come back up? Pray that these things would happen, that we would reach the lost, that we would have Lydia's in this town, that we would have Roman jailers in this town, that we would have young gals that are enslaved in this town, and that the gospel would set them free, and we would get to be the messengers. Pray that we would be like Paul in that moment, man, where we're sitting in jail and we're not missing opportunities. We're not thinking about getting out the door and getting on with our life. We're thinking about who is in front of us now. Pray we could do that. And if you're part of us, if you're going to track with us, if you're part of our team, if you're part of this church or you're, you're, you plan on coming, will you pray that we can all do that together? This is not a thing. It's people. And we're going to love each other. Amen? God, thank you so much this morning for your word. Thank you for bringing my voice back miraculously. Um, thank you, God, that you love saving the lost that you love to redeem brokenness, that you care about every Lydia and every jailer and every Roman soldier and every person making coffee and pumping gas and working at Home Depot and working at Dutch Bros. You care about every person in this city. You want them to come to faith. And Jesus, we pray that even through our bad motives that you would save people through us. Lord, that we would drink so deeply of the gospel that we have much to give, much to pour out. Jesus, we worship you now because you're worthy. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys all stand?